Tonight's reading comes from Acts 17, this is verses 1 through 10. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. This is the reading of the, of the word. You may be seated this evening. It's great to see you all. Welcome to service. I'm Steve, one of the pastors here at the church, and it's great to uh, worship with you on this very, very cold night. Uh, who is ready for spring already? <laughs> My word. If we weren't ready like two days ago, we're certainly ready now. Uh, it's just been a blast of, of cold. Uh, tonight we're jumping into a new series. Uh, it's a series on First Thessalonians. Over the last several weeks, uh, last three weeks, we've had a sermon on brokenness where we talked about um, our experiences of brokenness and finding strength in the Lord. Uh, this week, we're actually launching into a longer series. We're going to be in this book for several months now on First Thessalonians. And uh, <clears throat> we're calling this uh, Good News People. That's the title of the series. If you've been here at Grace Downtown very long, you've heard Pastor Jason use that phrase, Good News People, a lot. It's a great phrase. It's a great way to summarize a lot of things. And it's actually a very fitting title for our uh, series on First Thessalonians. Uh, before jumping in uh, to, the, to the actual message, I want to talk about the notion of good news. Um, how many of you, if you've had a hard week, a long week, maybe at school, maybe at work, maybe with the kids at home, um, Friday rolls around and you're super excited it's Friday and somebody says to you, hey, you want to grab pizza? How many of you would say that's good news? When somebody's like, it's Friday, let's grab a pizza. Now, how many would say it's even better news, like exceedingly good news, if they say, let's grab wig and pen pizza? It's like all of a sudden we're in another league, we're ready to really mean business. Now, let's say it's Friday evening, you're ready for that pizza, you've been kind of, uh, you've heard the good news, the pizza's coming, the box comes in to the house, and you're all sitting around the table, and the, the smell is just wafting through the air. The excitement is growing. You're salivating as I salivate anytime the box is in front of me. I feel like Pavlov's dog. And uh, just loving this moment. And you open the lid, and it's nothing but crust. How many of you feel like this is not, no longer good news? <laughs> How many of you, if you open it up and it's just cheese, you'd like, that's getting closer. But still, that's not great news. Uh, 
Although, you know, when you get a wig and pen pizza, if it's hot enough and you slice it, um, like the flying tomato, all the extra cheese just kind of starts oozing out where the slice was just pulled out. And so you end up with like a bonus slice of nothing but cheese. So in some ways, you can't avoid a bonus slice of just cheese. But for the, the good news to be really good, we want a, a pizza that has the crust. We want the cheese. We want the sauce. All those ingredients together make for a good slice of pizza. Any of those ingredients on their own, they're good. I enjoy eating Sam's crust when he doesn't want to finish it because I like the crust, but I don't want a whole meal of just crust. I mean, it's good, but it's not that great. We need these things to work together, all these ingredients together. And when it comes to the gospel, the gospel is a simple message in many ways, but sometimes we can so simplify it that we miss that it has various parts. And sometimes we can focus on one part of the gospel and overlook other parts of the gospel, and we're missing out on part of the good news. We can miss out on part of the good news. Here at Grace, if you've been at Grace for any amount of time, you know that when we talk about the gospel, we usually are going to talk about God's grace for sinners, which he's demonstrated at the cross, right? At some point, we're going to talk about the gospel in most sermons, and usually that means we're going to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners to atone for the sin of sinners. And may the Lord help us to never stop talking about that. Amen? That is a central message in the Bible. It's in Genesis 3, we're only three chapters in, and we already see foreshadowings of the cross event uh, as Adam and Eve sin, and uh, they've been tempted by the serpent to sin, and God shows up and says to the serpent, as we, uh, many of us know from our series in the fall and from other contexts, God turns to the serpent and says, um, you will bruise uh, the seed of the woman. There will be a seed from this woman, a descendant from this woman. You will bruise his uh, heel, but he will crush your head. That's foreshadowing this cross event where Jesus is on the cross and he's bruised, he's wounded and killed for our iniquities, but he's there squashing the power of Satan and squashing the power of sin. So the Bible is very clear, a long message that's foreshadowing the cross. And may the Lord help us to be cross-centered, especially when some churches have dropped the message of the cross out of regular preaching. It's been going on for quite some time here in America. I had a Bible college professor, Bob Stallman, loved the man to death, still do. He was a great professor, helped me in so many ways. Um, he said, I just wanted to see how cross-centered our preaching was in the particular context where he was. And so he took a tally of 50 sermons to see how many of these sermons mentioned Jesus. Are they even Christ-centered? And he said it was terrible. Like, very few of them actually referenced Christ or were focused on Christ. And he said even fewer were cross-centered. It was like somewhere in the neighborhood of six to seven out of 50 sermons. Not a great percentage, right? He said, my math must have been wrong. Maybe I caught these sermons in a bad season. He said, I'm going to do it again. So he tracked another 50 sermons right after that, and the same numbers came up. And it's because as a church and in the context we were in, we had kind of become uh, impoverished in terms of talking about the cross. May God help us to always stay cross-centered as we talk about the good news. And it certainly is good news to remember at the cross there's forgiveness. Jesus atones for our sin and that's good news, especially as we try to serve the Lord, we try to grow in righteousness, but we can still struggle with sin. It's still good news. In those days when we're, our struggle with sin is very apparent, it's still good news to remember that Christ has atoned for our sin. Amen? We take joy in that good news. But when we look at Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, what's really interesting 
It's five chapters long. And in five chapters, from what I can tell, I've read through it several times carefully, I only see two mentions of Jesus dying. There are only two references to the cross, explicit and direct ones that I can tell. And only one of those mentions Jesus dying for us. So if at Grace we talk about being gospel-centered, and we usually mean that's going to be a sermon about the cross and Jesus dying for our sins, but Paul only mentions the cross two times, or mentions Jesus dying two times in five chapters, does that mean that Paul is all of a sudden now not gospel-centered? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't believe that's the case. It means Paul is going to talk about the gospel in a different way than maybe we're used to with a book like Ephesians or Romans or Galatians, if you've been with us in some of the series where we've gone through those books. Paul is going to talk about the good news in a multifaceted way as we go through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. What we'll see is that Paul reminds us that the good news is actually multifaceted. It absolutely includes the message of Jesus dying on the cross. But what, Jesus, what Paul wants to emphasize in 1 Thessalonians is often Jesus being raised from the dead, which is also part of the good news. Jesus' death is great news because it washes our sin, but Jesus' resurrection is good news because it promises eternal life. Paul's going to spend a lot of time focusing on that in 1 Thessalonians. He'll also talk about how that forms an amazing community, and that's also good news, that those who believe the good news are shaped into this community where we experience togetherness and belonging, and we're growing in Christ together, loving one another. And Paul wants to show us in 1 Thessalonians what it looks like for our lives to be shaped by this good news. So he tells us what the good news is, in particular, some, some different shades of that good news. But then he's going to show us how our lives should be shaped and informed by that good news. So tonight, we're going to do something just a little different than we'll do through the rest of the series. Most of you, our church family here, you know how we preach. We usually go um, chunk by chunk through a book. Uh, dealing with one uh, set of verses at a time and then moving on to the next set of verses. Tonight, we're not going to do that. And we'll start that next week. Tonight, we're going to do an overview of the book as a whole. If you're like me, uh, maybe you've ended some of our sermon series uh, as a church family, and you're like, we've gone through Ephesians, and I remember this particular sermon and this particular topic and this theme, but I don't think I remember what the book of Ephesians is about. Have you ever experienced that? I'm on the teaching team, and I experienced that. <laughs> So what we want to do tonight is give an overview of the book. So hopefully we all can walk away uh, tonight and then even at the end of the series and remember, oh yeah, that's the purpose of the book as a whole. This is why Paul wrote this book. This is to whom he wrote this book, the reason for it and what he had to say to them. So we're going to have an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians tonight and then we'll jump into our verse by verse treatment next week. Lord, we're so grateful to you for uh, the Bible. Thank you so much for um, your word tells us who you are, tells us about what you've done in the world for us. And thank you so much for good friends tonight, uh, this body of Christ, these wonderful believers. We all get to go through this together. And I pray that you would just illuminate your word tonight. May we hear from 1 Thessalonians, hear from you, and may we grow in our understanding, but also grow in our love for you as a result of learning about you and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So first of all, let's talk about the context of 1 Thessalonians. Paul didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm bored. Mm, maybe I'll write a letter to the Thessalonians. <laughs> There's a reason for this. So Paul uh, already knew them. There's a backstory. Paul, uh, before penning this letter to the 1 Thessalonians, he had already spent time with them. It's outlined in Acts 17, very, very briefly. 
It's like nine or ten verses that we read prior to the sermon. That is like this quick summary of Paul's time with the Thessalonians. He went to them. He preached the good news to them. And uh, this is what we read. This is Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue. It was his custom to go to a town. And he usually went into the synagogue to preach the good news to the Jews first. As was his custom, he was in the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So it means he was there for three Sabbath days. That means roughly like three weeks, maybe a month, something along those lines. And as he was reasoning with them from the scriptures, verse 3 says, he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. So here's Jesus dying on the cross. But also to rise from the dead. Here's Jesus' resurrection. All part of the good news. And he also told them, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And he is God in the flesh. This is the good news in summary, as Luke summarizes it that Paul delivered to the Thessalonians. And many people believed this message. They heard the good news and they soaked it up. As we heard from the reading before, it included a lot of people who were devout Gentiles, or as some translations put it, um, God-fearing Greeks. That means they weren't uh, Jewish people. They weren't full Jews. They were not born Jewish and they had not converted to Judaism. They were Greek or Greco-Roman people, but they had a lot of appreciation for uh, Judaism and the God of Israel. And so they respected this God. They feared this God. They learned about this God, but they didn't completely convert to Judaism. And as Paul is preaching in the synagogue, who are those who believe many of them were among these God-fearers, these Gentiles who are not fully Jewish, but who were interested in the God of Israel. So as many of these God-fearers start to believe the good news, accept the good news, then the Jewish leadership starts to get jealous. Because these are people from around the synagogue, kind of associated with the synagogue, who are starting to pull away and associate with Paul. And it fans into flame their jealousy. And so the Jews, as we read, begin some kind of minor conspiracy. And they go to the city leaders in Thessalonica and say, you know, you've heard about these traveling preachers that stir up trouble. They're turning the world upside down. They're here now, and they're causing trouble. They say Jesus is the king, not Caesar. And you all have a vested interest in making sure that the citizens in Thessalonica worship Caesar. So you better do something about it. And sure enough, the city leaders are concerned. And so this persecution uh, grows, and it grows so severe, as we read, that Paul ends up leaving. The brothers say, Paul, you got to go. It's too dangerous. And he leaves under cover of night and goes to Berea. So that's what Acts 17 tells us about Paul and the Thessalonians. Uh, when our son Samuel had to go to preschool or kindergarten, um, I was nervous about dropping him off. I was like, he's our young child. We've invested this time with him. How's he going to do at school? Is he okay? I'd really like to go to the school and peek into the window and just see if he's doing okay, but I'm not going to be that creepy dad. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's when I was dropping him off after having, we had what, three years to work with him before preschool and then five years, whatever it was, before kindergarten. And I'm still worried about dropping him off. And that's with good teachers. Imagine Paul's ang anguish. He's only had like a month with these young believers. And he's ripped away from them. 
and he's not had a chance to like really ground and root them in a full understanding of the gospel, really help them get rooted, he's ripped away and then he's wondering, they're not like really mature in the gospel and there's all this persecution. Could you imagine his worry? How are my spiritual children doing is his deep worry and his anguish. He tries several times to go back. He's not able to go back. His worry and his anguish continue. And finally, as he puts it in 1 Thessalonians, he says, I love this language, when we could bear it no longer. Like, can you imagine the love he has for the Thessalonians? I, I can't bear it any longer not knowing how they're doing. That's like Paul's sentiment. We sent Timothy finally to find out how they're doing. So Paul sends Timothy to these beloved, dear brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution to find out how are you doing? And then Paul gets this amazing report back. The report comes back, Paul, you're not going to believe it. They're not just hanging on. They are thriving. They are standing firm and steadfast in the good news, in the gospel. And Paul is over, overjoyed and rejoicing at this. And this is the context in which Paul sits down to write 1 Thessalonians. This is the context when Paul sits down to write this letter. So then let's move from the context to the content. What did Paul say to this congregation? We're largely going to just move chapter by chapter, a chunk at a time in that, in that way to give an overview. So the first thing, he opens up chapter 1. And Paul gives thanks to God that the Thessalonians received the good news. So Paul is just overflowing with praise and thanks to God that the Thessalonians even responded to the gospel when he was first with them. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not just talking here about the fact that they're continuing in the faith. If you look just further on, verse 9, he's talking about how they initially received the faith. He says in verse 9, For they themselves, these are people in Macedonia and Achaia, in the regions surrounding Thessalonica. He's saying these people in the surrounding regions, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul's saying, man, when you turned to God, we came and preached the message to you, the good news, you received it. You turned from the idols and received it so strongly that it became like regional news. It's, everyone knew about this when you first placed your faith in the good news and in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is thanking God that they originally placed their faith in Christ and that they received the good news. He spends a whole chapter on that. But then Paul moves on in chapter 2 to remind the Thessalonians how he shared the good, good news with them. Paul wants to talk to them about how he lived while he was among them, to remind them of that. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he says this. When we were with you, we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So Paul here is reminding them, remember when I was with you? Yes, we thank, I thank God that you received the good news but also remember how I lived while I was among you. I was gentle with you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, this is significant. It tells us something about the good news and what it does to people. 
How many of you, like, do a, a little experiment with me here. Uh, use one word, throw out one word that you would use to describe Paul before he met Christ. Angry, cruel, harsh, zealous. Angry, cruel, harsh, zealous. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, chasing them down, seeking to persecute them, seeking to squash Christianity in a very harsh way. And yet when he encounters the good news of the gospel himself and is changed by it and is then commissioned to be a bearer of the good news, look at the kind of person it turns him into. He's, he's taken from this harsh zealot and is turned into someone who not only preaches the good news verbally, but his li- life is shaped by this good news. He becomes someone who is gentle. And he treats the Thessalonians like a mother would her children when nursing her children. He's so affectionately desirous of them that he shared his life with the Thessalonians. What that means, as he spells it out in context, is he said, we worked with our own hands to provide for our needs so that we wouldn't end up taking up an offering from you while we had the privilege of delivering the good news to you all. Other teachers come, traveling teachers come in, they speak for a while, they, they butter people up, they tickle their ears in order to be able to, to, to draw an offering at the end. Paul says, we tickled no ears. We did not deceive you. We used no flattery. Rachel's laughing and tickling no ears. <laughs> That's a funny phrase. We tickled no ears. It should be a slogan for some kind of a company. So Paul's trying to say, we didn't tickle any ears. We didn't butter you up to take up an offering. We were honest among you. We wanted to serve you. We worked with our own hands to have the privilege to share the good news with you. This is the kind of lifestyle that Paul practiced as he's sharing the good news with them. Now, I think the reason Paul wants to share this is to say, Thessalonians, you all are experiencing lots of persecution. There are a lot of ways that people are probably wanting to tempt you away from the gospel. Maybe some of them are Jewish people wanting to tempt you back to Judaism. They're kind of particular strain of Judaism. And maybe there are some Greco-Roman people who are trying to bring you back into idolatry. While you are hearing these tempting voices, let me remind you of why you should trust me. You can trust me because I proved my authenticity to you. My, my genuine character was for your good. I wanted to, to see you thrive and flourish. I wasn't out for personal gain. I wasn't out for glory. I wanted to glorify God, and I wanted to deliver this message to you because I love you and want you to, to, to hear God's good news and accept it. This reminds us that Paul was a good news person. He shared the good news verbally, but his life was marked by the good news. It changed how he exercised leadership and spiritual authority over them. It showed up in terms of gentleness and service and self-sacrifice, honesty, seeking other people's well-being. To be a good news person is not just to share the good news, but it's also to have a life that is marked by the good news. But as Paul also preached this good news to the Thessalonians and they received it, it formed them into a deep community of love and fellowship. Paul loved the Thessalonians. That's really clear. The Thessalonians also loved Paul. That's clear from the text. And the Thessalonians loved one another. Again, that language, Paul's saying, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's not language you use with a stranger, right? (laughs) If you're at Hy-Vee and somebody is bagging your groceries at the end, you said, hey, that was a great job bagging my groceries. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, And I feel close to you like a mother nursing her own children. It'd be a great way to be banned from Hy-Vee. 
uh, you are no longer allowed. <laughs> Aldi is for you, my friend. <laughs> That's language for people who have some kind of intimate bond and connection. And as Paul shared the good news and lived a life that was marked by the good news, the Thessalonians believed this good news and it bound them into a community where there was rich fellowship and love. This is good news. That's good news in and of itself, right? That God would forgive our sins and that, that we get to have fellowship with one another. This is all good news. And then Paul moves in chapter three to thank God again. But this time he's not thanking God for how the Thessalonians first received the good news. Now Paul shifts into a different mode. He wants to thank God for the fact that the Thessalonians are persevering in the good news. This is where he says, we got the report back from Timothy. You all are thriving and now we're overjoyed and we're thanking God. This is 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. I love this language. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Do you, do you get Paul's tone here? Like before he heard about how they're doing, it's like he's saying, I'm not thriving. I don't even feel like I'm fully living because I'm not sure how you're doing. But now that I've heard that you're standing fast in the faith, you're standing firm in the good news, even in the midst of persecution, now I live. Paul's own emotional well-being is wrapped up with the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians. And when he hears they're doing well, he thanks God and overjoices to the Lord. That reminds us of a couple of things. Again, it reminds us of the kind of community fellowship they had. Paul's joy is wrapped up with how the Thessalonians are doing. That's the level of community and connection and love he felt with the Thessalonians. The good news is not just that Jesus dies for our sins, but he binds us together into this kind of loving community where we share in one another's joys. The same Paul who says you should rejoice with those who rejoice gives us an example of what that looks like right here. He says, I live because you are thriving spiritually. That's the kind of community he experienced with the Thessalonians. But I think this point also reminds us that the Thessalonians knew just how good the good news was. They knew how good the good news was because they stayed committed to it in the face of persecution. This is serious persecution. In Thessalonica, uh, prior to the Thessalonians believing the good news, Paul says, look, you turned to the living God from idols. Prior to this, they had been, some of them had been God-fearers, but they're also probably dabbling in idol worship. And idol worship in Thessalonica was woven throughout every like, as, aspect of life. It's not like here in America or Western culture where religion has come a little bit more privatized. Like in many cases, you can bump into somebody and you're like, if you're religious, I'm not aware of it. You can work at a bank with somebody or in an office, go to school with somebody, and it's not necessarily automatically obvious from their public life, whether they're a Christian or a Buddhist or some, something else. But in Paul's day, that was not the case. To live in Thessalonica and to be a good Thessalonian meant you were probably involved in all kinds of idolatrous sacrifices in all different areas of life. It was woven throughout political life. You had to worship the Roman gods, and Caesar kind of enforced that. Sometimes you had to recognize Caesar as some kind of quasi-divine being. 
and uh, have some kind of cult of worship there. There are ways that certain trade guilds had cults of worship associated with them. There were a goddess of love, Aphrodite, and ways of like worshiping her. Even, I read about this, the commissioning of a ship had idolatrous elements woven throughout it. It involved idol worship. Just commissioning a boat. <laughs> so to turn from idol worship to the living God and to worship Christ to stop worshiping these idols, it would have been really clear in public life that you had stopped worshiping these idols. It would have set you apart very clearly and very publicly as being a Christian. And it would have also brought on persecution. So why did the Thessalonians persevere in the good news even amidst this kind of persecution and being set apart as different and weird? I think it's because they knew how good the good news was. Because when it comes to idol worship, what they were steeped in is this kind of idol worship where you go to your God, you go to the idol, and you make some kind of sacrifice in hopes of bending the idol's ear, inclining the idol to hear your request. And maybe, just maybe, this God or this goddess will listen if you've made the right kind of sacrifice. And maybe they'll help you They'll help you with your finances. They'll help you with your health. They'll help you with whatever you have to request of them. That's what the Thessalonians grew up with as idol worshipers. Then Paul shows up in Thessalonica and starts preaching about the living God. He says, let me tell you about a different God. It's the God of the whole universe. And yes, there's sacrifice involved with this kind of worship. But this is not a God where you have to come to sacrifice in order to get his attention. This is a God who has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and has sacrificed himself in order to shower you with rich blessing and grace and mercy and eternal life. Is this not a different picture of worship and sacrifice? A different picture of relating to God? It's not trying to bend a God's ear through sacrifice to get that God's attention. Please do something for me. This is a God who already knows the Thessalonians. He knows us, knows our sins inside and out, and still chooses to come into time, into history, and to die on a cross out of rich love for us. It's his initiative, not ours, in order to wash our sin away, to give us eternal life, and to give us fellowship with him because he loves us. I think because of that, the Thessalonians said, we embrace this God. We will embrace this God. We will put away our idols. And we'll embrace him even in the face of persecution because this is deeply good news. If there's a God who's taken initiative to make a sacrifice on my behalf, even when I'm unworthy because he loves me, I will love and serve this God. This is good news. So the Thessalonians, they remind us just how good news the good news is. And then finally, in the last couple of chapters, chapters 4 and 5, Paul wants to instruct and encourage the Thessalonians how to live in light of this good news. How should our lives be shaped by this good news? First of all, he gives them a call to holiness. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, this is the will of God. That's strong language. This is not the Lord's passing fancy. <laughs> this is not his momentary whim because he's bored. This is God's will, your sanctification, in particular that you abstain from sexual immorality. God would have all of us to grow in sanctification in a host of ways. Here, he singles out sexual immorality because the Thessalonians struggled with that. Part of the issue of Thessalonian, or Thessalonica's uh, 
religious histories that there was a lot of worship of Aphrodite and there was a lot of uh, sexual uh, activity involved with that. So Paul has to call that out in particular. But Paul is saying, when we're saved, the good news is that we're saved by grace. God has come to die on the cross for us so that we can be washed of our sin. But just because there's grace for our sin doesn't mean that we should uh, be quick and easy with sin. Now we are called to live lives of increasing holiness. The good news is a call to live lives of ever-increasing holiness. And Paul calls the Thessalonians into that. It's also a call to live in love. First Thessalonians 4, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, to do this. He means love one another because he's already affirmed that they love one another well. He says, you all love, love each other well, but do this more and more. Take something that you're good at and make it great <laughs> and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. For one reason or another, the Thessalonians, uh, some of them had stopped working. We'll get into that later in future sermons, why they stopped working. But Paul's saying, look, that's not very loving. If you're able to work and you've stopped working, you're having to depend upon other people. And that makes life a little more difficult for them. So if you can work out of love for your brothers and your sisters, do work. And as you do that, that's not only loving for your brothers and sisters, it also sets an example. It's a gospel witness to the world around you uh, and helps them to take the gospel seriously. So Paul urges them to love one another because it's important to love one another as Christians, but also because it gives a good testimony and witness to the world around. Helps us to walk properly before outsiders. So Paul says, part of the good news now is that, yes, Jesus forgives our sins, but that means we should still try to walk in love for one another more and more. And then finally, Paul gives a call to live in hope and in sobriety in light of Jesus' return. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed. Clearly, they were uninformed at this moment. Paul says, brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you do not grieve as others do who have no hope. The point is this, they were grieving. And they were grieving as those who have no hope. Uh, Thessalonians had been told Jesus was going to return. I think many of them expected Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And in the meantime, some of them had passed away. Some of them had died, maybe because of the persecution. And so they're wondering, uh, we were waiting for Jesus to come back. Some of us have died and he's not back yet. What happened to those who fell asleep or who died? They're deeply worried. And part of that's because from their Greco-Roman background, they had been taught things like this. Theocritus, uh, a Greco-Roman figure, wrote that hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. There was a general tone in Greco-Roman culture that hope is really just for those who are alive. Maybe there's some hope for us in the afterlife, but we're not sure. It was a pretty meager hope. And so the Thessalonians had been steeped in this. And they're having this, they have this question, like, Jesus isn't back. Some people have died. What's going to happen to them? What's their fate? And Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep or who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So how do you grieve in hope? He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For the Thessalonians, this is great news. That means my dear brother, my dear sister, who's fallen asleep, who's passed away, Jesus hadn't come back yet. 
It means there's hope that when Jesus does return, they'll be raised to eternal life. And this is deeply hopeful for the Thessalonians. Paul encourages them to, to walk in this hope, but not just hope. He also gives them a reminder to be sober and sober-minded. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 6. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, the day that Jesus returns. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So Paul's wanting them to be sober-minded, not like overly afraid. Like some people, when they talk about Jesus' return, uh, especially years ago, uh, when I was growing up in the church that I grew up in, it was common for people to be really afraid about Jesus' return. And uh, I remember there was one uh, guy in the denomination Mindy and I grew up in. He, I just actually heard this recently, was reminded of him saying things like this. He said, my daddy was a Pentecostal preacher. And there was one message, which is Jesus is coming back at midnight tonight and nobody's going. <laughs> nobody's going to be with Jesus unless you come to this altar right now and ask Jesus into your heart. And he said, I must have Jesus into my heart like 50 times or 100 times. And he said, I was always afraid at night. I always listened for the bell to ring at midnight. And I wondered, did Jesus come back tonight? And I'd tiptoe into my parents' room to find out if Jesus came back or not. That's not what Paul is wanting us to live in, right? Does that not sound pretty bad? Like he joked around about it, like he's learned to get over it. But could you imagine being that afraid as a kid? Paul's not talking about a kind of soberness that leaves us in paralyzing fear. Paul is saying we should live in hope, but it also should be paired with a sense of sober-mindedness. Be living in a sense of readiness for his return. Be watchful for Jesus' return so that it doesn't surprise us. So Paul, here as he's closing the book, wants to remind them to live in hope because of Jesus' return, but also wants to tell them, be sober-minded about his return. So as we've looked at this overview of 1 Thessalonians, there are more things we could say, but that's what we wanted to focus on for tonight. Uh, What does it mean to be good news people? We're going to talk about that for the next several months as we go uh, section by section and verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians. But what we see, uh, at least for now, is that uh, 1 Thessalonians teaches us that we need to continue to grow in our understanding of just how good the good news is. The good news is that there's grace for us, that God showed us at the cross. That's absolutely part of the good news. That should never stop being part of the good news. But there's also the good news that Jesus is coming again. And I think that's something that we're less trained in to see as good news. I think that's something that we're less apt to think about as part of the good news. I remember when I was in college, I actually thought about Jesus' return a little bit more. I worked at this car wash. Um, I was a dryer boy, which meant the car came out of the, the car wash, and I had this huge stack of dry towels, and I'd dry off cars all day long, which got really hard when it was like 15 degrees outside and your hands are freezing. You're handling wet cloths all day long. But I remember looking up at the sky one day, there's this beautiful cloud, and the sun was just uh, streaming behind it. And it just hit me like, what if Jesus came like screaming past this cloud today? Like Jesus came back today. And I was like, that would be amazing if Jesus came back today. And we're on the cusp of seeing the new heavens and the new earth. But as I've gotten older and gotten like involved in the cares of this life, I don't actually think about that as often. But Paul tells us that we should dwell on that and that that's part of the good news. So we want to talk about how to be people who are good news people, who remember Jesus' return and can say with others in the scriptures, 
Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. To get to the point where we, we long for his coming in the midst of a world that's broken by sin, and we look for his coming to, to heal this world. Amen? So it's good news. There's also good news. Not only has he forgiven our sin, there's the good news that he's coming to restore everything. We can long for that and look forward to that with hope and joy. But there's also the good news that we get to be the body together. The good news that he has bound us together as family. That's something we want to grow in. This a particular season as a church, we want to use this season downtown to talk about how we can get better rooted in the gospel. And in particular, how we can get better rooted in community with one another. A lot of that happens in community group. I'm so glad that so many of you are in community group. If you're not, we'd like to help you get in, into a community group. You can talk with Jason. You can talk with me. We'll help you with that. Community group is a great place to be in community with other people and to grow in Christ together. We're going to have a couple of forums uh, this semester where we'll talk about community, but also how to grow in Bible reading together. So we want to talk about that. We'll have some prayer initiatives you should be hearing about shortly where we can come together in community and pray. We want to talk about how we can be in community, like Paul experienced community with the Thessalonians, how he encouraged them to love one another, and how we can grow in community as well. And we also want to talk, as we look at 1 Thessalonians, about how we can continue to grow in living lives that are shaped by the good news. To grow in holiness, to grow in righteousness, to grow in our love for one another, and also to grow in loving one another in such a way that the world sees it, and it's a testimony and a witness to our Lord and a witness to the good news. We're going to close in a song together and sing and ask the Lord to help us to uh, turn to him, to follow him. The worship team's going to come now. And Lord, we just want to thank you for this moment. We want to thank you especially for uh, all of the good news. Lord, just tonight, just want to thank you for your grace for sinners. I pray for anyone tonight who's here who's never placed their faith in you, that they would feel just a, a strong sense of your love for them, that they would know that you have come into time to die on a cross to save them from their sin because you love them and you care for them and you want them to know you and you want them to have eternal life with you and with others. And I pray that you would help them to take that step of faith today to trust you, to confess their sins to you and to ask for forgiveness and to begin walking with you. For those tonight who are Christians and who are maybe struggling with sin and just feel discouraged by their struggle with sin, remind them of the good news that there is grace in Christ Jesus at the foot of the cross. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to know what it means to take joy in the good news of your return and to watch hopefully, expectantly for your return and to live lives that are shaped by that hope and that expectancy. Lord, may we experience greater degrees of community with one another. I just praise you so much for all the work you are doing in this body and in brothers and sisters' lives as they're in community with one another. And just as Paul said for the Thessalonians, I pray that you would do this more and more among us. Help us to love each other more and more. Help us to grow in holiness. And Lord, in all of these things, as we grow in, in being good news people and uh, getting rooted in the good news and then living in light of the good news, we just pray that your name would be glorified because we love you, God. And we want you to be glorified as the king of all things and as our great redeemer, our great savior. And we pray that as you are glorified in our lives, other people would come to know you and enter into this joy. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.